Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 102. Rest now, my warrior. This week, we're discussing the season four finale of Buffy, Restless, and series seven, episode seven of Doctor Who, The Rings of Akaten. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Okay. So, Restless. Um, mm-hmm. Didn't know what to expect this week. Didn't really expect what we got, but I, <laughs> but I didn't know what to expect, so right. anything would have been a surprise. Um, but I really liked it. I might say it's this might be my favorite episode so far of Buffy. Really? Like, I think this just sort of vaulted to the top of the list. So, okay, interesting. Um, yeah, I really, really liked it. So, um, Better than, kind of like, even Hush or, like, Surprise I, and Innocence and all that, huh? I, for me, I think so, yeah. I don't know. All right. It's a big uh, claim, but, yeah. That's not it. So, I mean, ge- just generally speaking, I mean, it mm-hmm. is a fairly well received episode like it's weird and whatever but yeah like i do think <laughs> that people tend to like it yeah. so um yeah and i just like that it's um just the experimentalism of it and the fact mm-hmm. that it is a finale but not like one that we're used to so it's sort of the culmination of the season but also, the tension of the big bad in the season is kind of gone, so it sort of it just is free to do kind of what it wants. Um, mm. So, yeah, and it's cool. I like, um, as we go through, I'm sure I'm going to kind of find a little bit of difficulty because... I feel like there's two things going on, and I'm not always sure which is which. And I feel like this is an episode you get a way more out of even after having seen the rest of the series. Because I feel like sure. on the one on the one hand, we're getting, you know, we get to see each of like the characters through the dreams that they have. So on the one hand, what you're getting is like some kind of like Freudian analysis of their characters like what how are their fears and you know dreams and anxieties and all these things being interpreted through the dream like that it tells us something about their their who they are and what they're thinking about at that time or whatever Mm -hmm. but then going alongside that there's also this kind of more mystical mythic prophetic element you know of the first slayer sort of invading the dreams and uh and there's just certain dialogue which i feel like points to things outside the characters you know that it's not necessarily coming from what the characters feel it's coming from something bigger and so kind of the fun of it is those two things are all mixed up and you can't quite tell the difference you know Mm. maybe in hindsight then you can go back and say, you know, oh, this was a foreshadowing of something, you know, that we haven't seen yet. Um, 
But I don't think it's just that, you know, because I feel like if all it was was just teasing the future, then it wouldn't be as satisfying on the first watch. But because it's also like this character development, there's things that you can point to more immediately and, and get something out of, you know, out of the context of what we know right now. Um, so I think I like the way that it just sort of plays with both of those things. Mm. Um, the other thing, too, I wanted to point out about kind of the premises, I like the fact that this, and this is sort of one of those serendipitous things, because I, I think I'm right in saying Joss Whedon didn't know that Buffy would be a seven-season series. You know, that right. at this point, anyway, he didn't know that. So, right. you know, in hindsight, we do know that season four is sort of the central season. You know, that you have, like, it's, like, exactly the midpoint of the story. Hmm. So, just sort of serendipitously, I like the fact that this episode happens here. Because you have this sense of, okay, we've had all the culmination of the story up to this point. And then you have this very, like, self-reflective, weird episode kind of right in the middle. And, you know, there's Tara's lines about how you think you know who you are, but you haven't even begun. So there's this kind of forward-looking, okay, now we're going into the next phase of the story and, you know, entering sort of the back half. And that's kind of cool to realize, like, that I don't know that we'll never have an episode like this again, but probably not quite like this. So Mm -hmm. I like the fact that it happens here um, because it has a nice kind of, like, it just feels like a good pivot point and it has a nice sort of symmetry to it, which is cool. Yeah. Um, so I was just, while you were talking to, I was just looking up and there definitely is a pretty good <laughs> critical reception to this. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, this is something you usually do, but I'll run through like the list of, different things. So Entertainment yeah. Weekly put out um, a, a list of the 25 best Whedonverse episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so including Buffy, Angel, Firefly, Dollhouse. Um, and this one was placed number 20 on that list. So, you know, okay. I mean, down on that list, but, you know, high among overall Whedon Well, right. You're stuff. including all You're, the shows there. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, sci-fi, the, the UK version of sci-fi website, um, listed it as the seventh best episode in their top 10 Buffy episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, others have put it as high as one or two. So you're not alone sort of yeah. with that. Um, uh, Daniel Ehrenberg wrote for Slayage uh, Journal um, that uh, saying that he thought it was the second best of the series because it lends itself to infinite interpretation. Uh, Mm -hmm. No one watches it the same way. And it's, you know, that sort of makes it the mark of a true masterpiece. Um, Noel Murray of the AV club um, said that uh, he was impressed with just the ability of Whedon to capture what dreams are actually like, which is, you know, often attempted yeah. In, in visual media, but not often successful. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, just definitely, definitely do a lot of the sequences. And 
Um, like, you know, is Xander climbing through the back of the truck, you know, yep. into the basement kind of yep. thing, you know? Yeah. How uh, you're in one place and then it just sort of melds and transforms into yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few others. Um, and, uh, let's see. It also, it also received some nominations, although I'm not sure, um, for the Hollywood Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild Awards. Oh, okay. uh, it it was the Best Contemporary Makeup and Best Contemporary Hairstyling uh, for the nomination, for nominations. Um, mm -hmm. uh, some other, actually, Buffy episodes and Angel episodes uh, were in there as well, but this one... This one sort of hits on all the marks, I guess. So yeah. anyway, just to, I didn't quite have as, as much research beforehand, uh, <laughs> but, but I was able to at least find that much um, here. So yeah, just yeah. sort of, I mean, I, like I said, I like this episode too. And um, I had sort of remembered that it was, you know, critically sort of enjoyed. And, and so you're, you're placing it as number and, and come to think of it, my number one episode is in a later season. So like, okay. you know, to this point and the, like, I mean, it, it, you know, could easily have been when I was watching it through the first time, this may have been one of my favorites as well. I mean, sure. it is, it is still one of my favorites, but um, we have to talk before we get into substance, we have yeah. to talk about my favorite part of my, of this episode, which is okay. of course the completely random cheese man. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the fact that yeah, he, he's sort of iconic, than, isn't he? Other than the you know the the first Slayer who uh -huh. um sort of is in all of their dreams, he's also the only sort of element that crosses over right into all of them, right? Right. But but he, where she kind of has all this meaning and portent, he seems to be that kind of random dream element that you know yeah. Well, is, you know, like, well, okay, say what you were going to say. I was going to say that actually, like, it's easy to overlook, but I actually think he plays a really important role. Um, so the one thing, it did make me wonder, um, just okay. from like a writing point of view, kind of what, you know, it's that kind of thing of where does, what part of someone's brain does this idea come from? But the the gag at the end so we've had him kind of pop up and say kind of you know nonsensical things in each of the dreams but at the end with buffy you know when it comes down to her and the first slayer and they have their argument about buffy says she can have friends and the first slayer says no you're on your own and then he comes in with his cheese you know and my brain goes to you know as in the cheese, you know, stands alone. Um, so <laughs> I've that, never thought that before, but that's well, possible. That's what I, and then that made me think, <laughs> did, did it, this doesn't like prove anything, but like, it made me wonder if that was the original gag. And then Joss decided to go back and work him into all the other dreams. Like, gotcha. because he had this visual image of like a a guy with cheese and that's right. so weird that that has to be part of everybody's dream. But yeah. I don't know. 
I just, the way she said alone, and then he kind of slides in and like kind of wiggles the <laughs> yeah. cheese. I just thought that's what the cheese does is it stands alone. So that's very interesting. I've never <laughs> thought of that before, but um, maybe that's not as profound a meaning as what you were thinking, but well, I mean, sort of undercuts what I was going to say. No, I, I was going to go on about uh, just how, like, I do think that it has a very important meaning and that, that meaning is that sometimes there is no meaning. <laughs> sure. And and no, I mean, I'm being tongue in cheek here a bit. Uh, I, Whedon has himself said that the cheese man is meaningless um, because sometimes that's just what dreams are, meaningless things that don't make sense. Uh, and in this case, like this cheese man element is just someone who makes no sense and even though he's sort of in like all of their dreams, like it's still just a weird coincidence kind of thing. Well, um, it's like that, that kind of is what I was getting at earlier. Like yeah. he, he is the counterpoint to the meaning laden first slayer, like where, and it's sort of like the two of them together sort of gives you a, an idea of what dreams are, you know, Sometimes you can learn a lot from dreams and they have something to tell you mm -hmm. and they're really symbolic and important, you know, and you can get very like Freudian with that. But Freud also said sometimes, you know, a banana is just a banana, you know, or <laughs> right. whatever, you know, Cigar's sometimes just a cigar, yeah. sometimes it's just a, an, a random and inexplicable, you know, bit of you know, so, so weirdness that your brain sort of cooked up. Um, yeah. And the two are sort of equally important, I guess, in the way our brains work and the way like yeah. dreams and imagination works. Yeah. So it is kind of, I hadn't thought of that, that those are the two, those are the only two things that all the dreams share. But I feel like it's significant that those are the two things. Sure. Like the one is the most portentous, and the other is the most just bizarre and random. Yeah. Well, and, but then on the other hand, the way that Buffy sort of figures out that you can just sort of ignore mm -hmm. the first layer too, almost flips it because yeah. then it's like, no big deal. You know, like, right. yeah, I'm not going to listen to you and you're my, you're in my dream. And then it's like, the thing that really bothers her is not the first slayer. It's the cheese man. What the, the heck was he doing guy. in there? Yeah. So like, even at the end, it's like, it kind of flips it, you know, from yeah. an important standpoint. Um, yeah. So Joss Whedon is sort of saying that the cheese man is meaningless. He goes, um, he, the cheese man confounds everyone because of that meaninglessness. And, and, and then people go and ascribe meaning to him. Like, you know, it's, right. it's one of those things where it's like, and and we've talked before, even just how, like, in our own sort of interpretation of stories, like, you know, we enjoy looking at them and seeing what the text says and trying to sort of dig out their meaning. But, like, to say that there's sort of, like, objective meaning and, you know, this and that, like, in a story, like, ultimately it is, yes, there is the text and, you you, you know, we do want to sort of base what we say off of that. But that doesn't mean that a story always has to mean one specific thing or that is going to mean the same thing every time a person revisits it. And right. so, you know, in a sense that is sort of a metaphor for just this sort of analysis that we do on a mm -hmm. weekly basis, even of 
all everybody's a cheese man and we're just trying to ascribe meaning to what they do you know like right in a way wow that was way more profound than i actually meant it to be no um he's very deep the cheese man. yes yes the cheese man no i my favorite is uh, you know i wear the cheese that does not wear me it does not um, wear me so <laughs> Or whatever. I think well, I actually and might it, have screwed that up. I mean, but. the other thing we can do with the cheese man, which it, maybe we can mention as we go through the dreams and stuff, but, like, he did tailor himself slightly to each of them. Like, mm. you know, I think Xander's was kind of about protection. Like, the cheese won't protect you. You know? Sure. And if I'm reading Buffy's right, it was about being alone, you know? Or, you know, and mm. even Giles's is kind of, um, you know... Uh, I, I I wear the cheese. It does not wear me. You get all this stuff about the the roles that he's playing, the jobs sure. he has to do, and everything. Um, so even though he's kind of, I don't think you know. I think Joss is right in the sense that I don't know that we need to look to the cheese man for like the key to understanding Buffy the Vampire Slayer or anything. But like that doesn't mean that what he does is totally without any reference at all so sure, um, sure. Yeah. um and that, so just i guess speaking of like sort of cross dream and frame and all of that mm-hmm. sort of stuff too i do want to point out um that like you know to your point about this sort of being a pivotal uh uh episode um and and you're right, like, you know, Joss didn't necessarily know that it was going to be seven seasons. So, like, I don't think he's thinking of, like, this season as being, um, like, the midpoint per se. But mm-hmm. I think we've talked about definitely throughout this season of how, you know, there is just the factor of going away to college and, you know, the drifting away of friends and then coming together again. Like, this is this is the quintessential, where are they? They're back in Buffy's mom's house you know together in the living room spending time like quality friend time together not hunting demons not you know doing whatever so like i think in that respect you know it it, the fact that this is a weird occurrence the Mm. fact that they are doing this like friend stuff together is is kind of strange um does show that like this season I think you're right is pivotal in that way like it's definitely a change but then we also get some references like um uh uh Tara I believe it is it mm-hmm. dream Tara says to mm-hmm. Buffy you know you think you know what's to come what you are but you haven't even begun so like mm-hmm. this is Joss writing the words that Tara speaks you know like yeah. like we should be sort of paying attention to that like yeah. that that there are there are things Buffy is going to be and and I mean encountering I mean she doesn't actually encounter the first slayer right this is like some sort of like psychic residue of you know these are my words this isn't like the official explanation or anything but like some sort of psychic residue of the spell they performed but that spell tapped into whatever power Mm -hmm you know, was given to that first layer, which has been passed down. So, you know, I think whether because of that or whether, you know, whether it has something to do with, with that or whether it's something that's just 
the fact that Buffy now is older than most slingers live to be. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's sort of uncharted territory, sure. you know, to be traveled um, because of the things. And we can, I mean, we can sort of talk about the individual dreams and stuff too. But but because of the things that come up in the dreams, especially her dream of you know, goes back to that idea of a slayer with friends and family. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is her not alone. And a slayer who's not alone lives longer and ends up having more to do. You know, and not not just right. more, not just like sheer numbers of okay, if you kill fifty vampires a year and you know, over ten years you're gonna kill more than over five years. Like it's not even that. It's like that right. now you actually can have like longer term plans and right. start thinking about ways to like not just defeat evil but like annihilate it or like vastly reduce it mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So like I you know, I'm not I'm not trying to say one way or the other, but I'm just saying like these are all options of things that like we can think about and yeah. and and Buffy, like maybe every Slayer had that potential, but Buffy now, with this sort of pivotal, you know, she could actually find, meet that potential. Friends, like, right, yeah. she can meet potential that never was available, perhaps yeah. to other Slayers in the past. Um, especially when she's rejecting what the first Slayer says is her role. It's right. like, like, which is kind of, well, man, all right. I'm starting to talk about Buffy's dream. Let's let's maybe we were going to go like person by person. So let's yes. maybe do that. And then we can talk about Buffy specifically. Cause I do want to make sure we, okay. we, we do that. Okay. Well, let's just go in order then. So we start with Willow. Um, and we start with her, with Tara in the door in Tara's dorm room, um, mm-hmm. which is where she's been spending her time lately. And, but you get the first hint of this sort of desert landscape, which is haunting them because outside the dorm is, you know, this hot, you know, arid desert and everything. Um, And, you know, they're talking about school and homework and responsibilities, but then you've got the like weird stuff going on of, you know, her painting symbols on Tara's back. Yeah. They look like Greek um, letters, I think. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't, quite tell what they were but i guess i don't know whether if there are greek letters i'm sure somebody's translated them but i didn't look it up um yeah i don't i don't know i don't know what it says but um a lot of talk too about secrets like and you start to get this hint of Mm. um so there's these references to like them. There's this sort of this group. So mm-hmm. whoever they are, we never quite find out. But Willow, it's sort of like this idea that there's some secret that Willow has that they might find yeah. out about. But Willow I, says she she feels safe here. Um, I always I always kind of got the impression it was like everyone, everyone sure. who's not Willow. <laughs> like sure, yeah, yeah. and yeah. That that's just my interpretation, but like, yeah, that's what I always sort of took it well, as. Well, and that's the great thing about this episode is you could probably, yeah, you know, come up with like a million. And again, is that is that Freudian or or prophetic? Is that like you know? I and I don't know. Like, is that something from within Willow or something from the outside? And yeah. and it's kind of like walking the line between those two. 
but definitely I think the theme of Willow's dream is this role, you know? So mm -hmm. the, the idea that she's wearing a costume, mm -hmm. which is her, just her normal clothes, that this is not her real self, that that's a costume she's put on. And someday someone is going to find out that she's a fraud and kind of rip it off like Buffy does. And it's mm -hmm. the same old, uh, you know, kind of mousier, geeky Willow that we first knew back mm -hmm. in the start of the series. That really, this new cool Willow who has, like, a cute haircut and it has confidence and learns magic and has a girlfriend and all this stuff, that that's just the costume. That's the facade. And somebody's going to figure this out and expose mm -hmm. her for like the frightened schoolgirl that she really is underneath. That's my kind of, you know, dream analysis, I guess of, yeah. um, the funny thing though, about Willow's dream of the play is that, um, I have that dream fairly, fairly regularly. Um, and that's my inadequacy dream. Like when I'm like stressed and about and not feeling prepared for something, I turn up for a play and don't know my lines. Um, yeah. And huh. actually, the day that I watched this, that morning, I woke up with that dream. And not only that dream, but like even the specific thing about that it's the first day of rehearsal and you haven't even rehearsed it yet, but we're going into like production like today and everybody mm. else knows their part and you haven't even like seen the script yet. I had that dream like the other morning. So it was so funny when I put this on. It was like, not only can I relate to that dream, but I had that dream like yeah. this morning. So yeah. that probably tells you which of the characters I identify the most with. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's yeah. maybe TMI, but um, <laughs> anyway. No, no, so keep going. No. It, uh. <laughs> no, but it is all that. So to me, that's I have that dream when I'm feeling inadequate. Mm -hmm. So... I, I feel pretty comfortable saying that's maybe how Willow feels and, yeah. um, you know, that she has a part to play and she doesn't know it. She, yeah. Everyone else knows their part and she doesn't. Um, and not only that, but her part is her life. So mm -hmm. it's not a flapper or a cowboy or anything else. It's just her everyday clothes and her everyday life. And that's right. the part that she's not really prepared for. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I've heard that, you know, from time to time, you'll hear like famous people or, you know, whatever actors or, you know, successful people in various ways say that's how they feel like that, that mm -hmm. they'll be found out like that. They're not as good as everyone seems to think they are. And that, yep. You know, that that seems to be just sort of a common human fear of, mm -hmm. you know, maybe maybe it'll all crumble and people will realize that I'm actually not as smart or as capable or as whatever yeah. witty and intelligent and whatever, you know, as people think I am. Um, watching it through, I guess, at least the first time, did you before sort of it was revealed you know before like buffy rips the clothes off and it's her mm -hmm. and her you know uh very um 
conservative, you know, like brown uh-huh. dress, you know, that she, like you said, she would be wearing like the first season. Right. Um, did you guess that that was what she was? No, I, thinking? when Buffy ripped it off, I was imagining that she, cause then it, Buffy rips it off and then you see that the classroom is full of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't see that until that happens. Right. And I think my first initial thought was she's going to be naked in front of the class. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like so, Xander was at one time. Yeah. In nightmares. Right. In nightmares. Yes, exactly. So, which I had forgotten that reference. So I would have forgot that they did that before, but, um, but there would have but, been no, a sort but once of, I, yeah. once I saw it, that made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's how she feels inside is is that you know that same person um but yeah that was my kind of first probably more obvious thought um well and i i always like i think they do a really good sort of bait and not bait and switch but like mislead you know sleight of hand in a way because um i mean obviously i've seen this a number of times and i know where it's headed but like even now, like I, I still see a very strong like suggestion of like that. She's still fearing about her lesbianism. That it's, mm. you know, that it's her sexuality. That you know they're gonna find out and whatever. Especially yeah. because it's like Tara saying you know stuff to her, you know, yeah. and and like those are the things that she most recently with Buffy was sort of afraid of and that kind of thing. But then yeah. it. Like, I like that they don't do that and that it goes, even though they might sort of hint at it here and there, mm-hmm. and but that it goes right back to that first season. And it's like, actually, yeah, that does, like you said, that does make sense because that's the core of her character. That's the mm-hmm. thing that she was picked on for being and, you know, was sort yeah. of trying not to be you know and and that's why she liked going to college because she could just be who she wanted to be and sort of reinvent herself a little bit and you know take on the witch stuff (laughs) you know and that kind of stuff Um, well and and i they keep it nicely sort of vague enough that it could mean all of those things and and none of them in particular just sort of Hmm. all of those things are you know whether it is this new relationship or just her new persona in general, that these are things which are new and which are, you know, if she still feels like that same season one Willow, there's a part of her that must be going, what am I doing? This isn't me. You know, Mm. Um, I'm not the kind of person who does stuff like this and dresses like this and acts like this, that she's still kind of coming to terms with, the fact that she can kind of grow out of that and into, you know, I mean, now everyone else, like her friends and the audience knows, okay, it is you. It's just the new you and you're growing up and these are the ways in which you're changing. But to Willow, that feels like a totally different person, you know? So yeah. Um, no, I I did think they did a really good job with that. Um, even too, even later when it switches over to Xander's dream, and there's just that bit where he leans over and you see that Willow's like asleep and still kind of like gasping in her sleep and struggling and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know he's like all right what's up with her and and the way Buffy said Buffy says big faker like yeah, even yeah. there there's still there's a role she's faking you know like mm. like and again that's Xander's dream so maybe that tells us something about Xander but uh there's still that kind of through line of she's a she's faking something mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um you know and maybe yep. it's a case of you know fake it till you make it you know be the person you want to be and eventually you'll become that person but sure. um you know clearly she's still kind of learning how to have confidence in who that person is so right right um let me see. Is it well? Also, Oz turns up, which I wasn't expecting oh, either. Yeah. Um, definitely wasn't uh, expecting to see him. Um, and there's not a lot with him, but there's just that little moment, you know, with Tara, you know, when she is in front of the classroom, and mm-hmm. you know, I, everyone's either bored or making fun of her or whatever, and. Uh, and with kind of smirks, Oz says to Tara, like, I warned you. And, you know, Tara kind of, yeah. you know, kind of, like she that, smirks too. Right, um, it's that classic fear of, like, you don't want your exes talking. <laughs> or, yeah. like, your yeah. ex talking to your current, you yeah. know, whatever, flame. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. And, you know, and still that fear of uh, why they're why her relationship with Oz broke up in the first place and, you know, what kind of fears does she have that might get transferred over to this new relationship? So if he's kind of sharing whatever, you know, warnings he had about her with the new girlfriend and everything. So, um, you know, a little bit of anxiety there about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I want to mention too with each of them is the the willow one didn't strike me at first but later with the first slayer um i noticed that with xander and giles she she attacks them in ways that reflect their uh their kind of position in the like you know spell that they did so like xander gets his heart ripped out and giles gets scalped right um and so then that made me go back and well okay how does that work for Willow? Um, and hers is a little bit weirder, but like, I thought like the fact that she gets sort of all her like kind of youth and got, I guess like vitality get, you know, sucked out of her. So she's like, you know, it seems like she gets kind of shriveled and old Mm. and everything. So it's sort of like, I guess like the soul or the spirit being sort of drained. Um, I thought that was kind of cool that she went and then like took the, she took away from them the thing that they contribute to the group, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely. That's very perceptive. I guess I'll say, yeah, no, I, that, that is definitely intentional. And, and I think you're right. It's definitely tied to their role. So, yeah. Well, um, I just want to, so we do get Oz in one other scene too, when, uh, um, oh. before that him and Xander and, um, 
so Willow says something like, oh, you know, she tell, like she said she's taking drama and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. And she's like, oh, you've taken it, too. And he's he's goes, I've always you're or what it was. I've been here a long time or something like that. I've always it's like been I've here. always been here. Or yeah. Something. Like, yeah. Been here forever or something like that. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, but yeah, I just thought that was like interesting just sort of the way that he he comes in just you know it's typical nonchalant oz mm-hmm. stuff um and it's just very very much like yeah like i mean oz is never ominous per se but in a mm-hmm. way his presence kind of is you know just yeah. like in that in those moments of now it is yeah yeah um whatever but of course, then Willow goes off and they're talking about spells and Xander right. gets his, well, sometimes when I think about women doing spells, I go do a spell myself. <laughs> well, so there's another through line which carries over is like Xander's uh, kind of attraction to the the Willow-Tara couple. Um, yeah. And the fact that it's in Willow's dream as well kind of suggests that she's maybe picked up on that a bit that, you know, um, maybe there's something there that he, you know, or maybe that's just her kind of assumption and she turns out to be correct. But, um, you know, that does kind yeah, of it's, make an appearance in both. It things. is hard to know because we, I mean, because we do have these other elements of the cheese man and the first slayer, it is hard to know, like, if if some of the personality of the way that people act in each other's dreams is or is not their own. You know what I mean? Like, right. in one sense, like, I think we can think that Buffy maybe isn't acting, you know, like the little girl, like she does in Giles's dream. Right, but, right. Um, or even Sander, if she kind of does. Um, right a bit too, like playing in the play sandbox. But like the fact that she is in those two dreams, sort of acting like a little girl at the same time, it's like, well, maybe mm-hmm. there is something there. Like maybe, mm-hmm. maybe there is a bleed through in character that is, that's more than just, like you said, perception or picking up on something yeah. by the actual dreamer. But maybe, maybe there is a little bleed through from each of them um, happening because it is, it, you know, it, it is, Along the lines of like, uh, well, like Amy's choice, right? Of the mm-hmm. the psychic pollen yeah. or whatever that, yeah. you know, caused them to sort of share dreams. Um, yeah, could there be might be sort some of a similar crossing like over that. going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it's as, like, I, I definitely think like in this case, like you're definitely getting like the individual person controlling the dreams. But yeah, like maybe there's like a little seepage, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. happening between between them yeah um so yeah so i guess we should talk about xander's dream then yeah next uh um well yeah so xander starts out in the house itself so he's kind of um they give yes yeah, speaking of being a faker they give you a little fake out there right yeah you they do. do think he's well and it's up. that creepy moment of willow's like you know dying over there and them just kind of not doing anything and you know right. like what's wrong with her you know all right she's faking it you know not really worried about it um 
Which is itself another aspect of bleed through, right? Because that's yeah. happening in her dream and also in real life. Yeah. So like it's that, it's that thing of like you know assimilating like a song or something like on the radio. Right. If it's you know, going on. Your, yeah. Like he's kind of aware actual. of what's going on in the room, but yeah, not enough to really like fully understand it. Right. Um, and. Uh, so he goes upstairs to go to the bathroom and bumps into Joyce. <laughs> so we see a couple examples of some of what Xander has on the brain. Um, and, you know. Not real shocking. Not real shocking. You know, he is the kind of impulsive, you know, uh, bodily function driven one of the group, I guess. Um, you know, and so you get, you know, Joyce kind of Mrs. Robinson-ish with her kind of red, <laughs> you know, negligee yeah. being not at all subtle and, you know, um, you know, the comfortador. so yeah, the comfortador. Um, so I guess a couple, uh, things of like kind of Xander themes that kind of kept coming up was this idea of I guess movement, like it's all about going places and mm. where are you going? Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and don't get lost on the way. And, you know, he goes upstairs and, you know, Joyce says, oh, they all left a while ago. He says, well, I should go catch up. So there's this sense of everything's ahead of him and he's always running to catch yeah. up, which is what we've seen, you know, that everyone is more, he feels is more advanced than he is. They're all at college and he's sort of the one getting left behind and not knowing where to go from here. Um, You know, and he kind of says like, I'm, Oh, I'm going places, but, um, but you ever don't ever really feel like he quite really knows where he's going. And I I like the way that with his, all the rooms do start to connect, you know? So you get this kind of labyrinth where, he opens doors and walks into a new place, but everything leads back to the basement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like three or four times he turns a corner or opens a door or crawls through something and ends up back in the basement like mm-hmm. every single time. So it's the labyrinth in the sense of everything's connected, but there's like no way out. Um, you know, right. everything goes back to this place where he doesn't want to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's that classic, like, uh, comparison of being busy versus being productive. Like, Xander mm-hmm. is busy. <laughs> he sure. He's going places, but those places are all the same place, kind of, yeah. in a way, you know. And yeah. um, I like, I like to, the scene, right, like, where, so he's at the playground, and he's looking over, and he's seeing himself, like, serving Watching ice himself. cream. Yeah. And then, like, the view switches, so then he's in the ice cream truck, and he's looking over, seeing himself at the playground. And it's always, it's like that idea of no matter where you are, you want to be somewhere else. It's that, you know, grass is other greener, always Mm. greener sort of idea um, that he's, he is always chasing after something. Like, even, okay, so he gets in the truck, and he goes up front, and he's driving, and Anya's like, do you know where you're going? Like, you know, like, you know, just those little you know, things like that. And it's, he's like, well, you know, whatever. And then turns around and he sees Willow and Tara. So what's he do? He leaves Anya and goes to chase after them. And Mm -hmm. what's that do? Like everything. It's like, he doesn't 
everyone else has their own path and he hasn't figured out yet really what his own path is. And so, yeah, it's kind of that thing of, you know, once you, once you figure that out, then, you know, there will be people who will join you and there will be people who may not join you. But as long as you're like chasing after someone else's path Mm. or dream or whatever, like you're not, you're always going to be, well, restless, you know, like you're Mm. always going to be trying, trying to catch them, but they're, they're doing their own thing. And it's, I don't know. I feel like I'm a little stumbling a little bit for words, but like just that idea of, you know, you're not going to be happy ever chasing after someone else. And you're always going to find yourself back in the same spot, which is not where you want to be. The way you get to where you want to be is to figure out where you want to be and go there. (laughs) Right. Well, and I hadn't thought of it this way, but, um, even, uh, some of the things like whenever we do see him kind of moving, he's not really moving. Like when he's in the truck, it's like clearly they're not like really driving. It's like they're sitting still and there's like one of those movie screens going past right, with right. like fake scenery. Like it's just painted on and it's just on yep. a loop. Like and it's like fake driving. Like but you're really staying in one place. Um mm-hmm. and same thing when he then is kind of plunked down into the movie and he's in the jungle. It's like he's kind of walking in place and there's like fake scenery going by him like sure even when he's going he's not really going he's sort of like right on a treadmill almost like he's walking but he's not getting anywhere um so yeah and even even i like snyder as uh kurtz but um uh his thing about where you you know he asks where are you from the basement mostly (laughs) which Um, is which is true which is true um so how how about so talking freudian stuff how about the whole thing with his dad and the stairs yeah that was weird because we haven't seen like we know of we know xander has parents (laughs) we've never met them um They allow him to live in the basement, you know, for, I'm sure, you know, whatever contributions he mm-hmm. makes. Um, yeah, he does mention having to pay rent. At he some pays point rent. Um, yeah. We know his mom has made them fruit punch before. Um, but, like, you know, we haven't really seen much. And it, it does kind of hint that, and you know, he's got holidays. What's that? They fight during the holidays. Like That's we right. get little That's hints, right. He you know, goes and about... sleeps out in the tent, right? Right. Um so it does kind of give this idea that his dad at least is not a very nice dad. Um Sure. And so cuz the the when he's in the basement, um the handle keeps jiggling, right? And and I just assumed it was this the slayer you know or i didn't know it was the slayer at that point but whatever the monster was that was chasing Mm -hmm. them um and he keeps saying things like that's not the way out um and 
Which for someone who's going places, it's like, okay, well, what is the way out there? Right. Like, that's the door. <laughs> like, yeah. like, how else are you getting out? And once I kind of realized, okay, it is about his his parents or his dad, um, that kind of made me, like, reevaluate, okay, what does he mean by that when he says that's not the way out? And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, is the upstairs, you know... it. Is it not the way out in the sense of not wanting to become that? Like, mm. like there has to be another way. It can't be that way because that way is where, you know, they come from. And so we don't want to go up into their space. Um, so staying down here, you know, even if you're not going anywhere is better than going up there, I guess. Um, I don't know. There's probably other ways you could kind of interpret that. But the way that you know, when his his dad finally does, like, break down the door, and then he kind of turns into the first Slayer. So his dad kind of becomes the monster, which, like, mm-hmm. then tries to kill him. So, right. you know, I don't know how literally or not to take that. I mean, we could take it pretty literally, um, you know, in terms of, like, is his dad abusive, or is this is he just afraid of him? Is he just mean um or you know we're i don't i don't know because we haven't really seen a lot but it definitely gives us a bit more insight into xander's family um Mm -hmm. and it's like and it sucks because of all of them he's the one who's stuck at home you know like right in a way it's like he's probably the one who would be most desperate to leave and to get out you know, but he's the one who's still in the basement. Um, so. Yeah. And the cheese man's dialogue is about protecting. The cheese will not protect you, so. Right. You know. Right. This is true. Um... Yeah, I don't have much more to add to that. So. Okay. Well, let's move on to Giles. Um, <laughs> so, Giles. Oh, well, you know what? One last thing about Xander, which will lead us into Giles. The other thing in Xander's dream is the thing of Giles teaching Spike how to be a watcher. And they're in their, like little suits and swinging on the swings and you know which is funny to see xander's perspective on giles and spike versus giles's perspective on giles and spike you know that like right xander kind of sees them together like almost like he's now like the mentor to spike you know almost like and xander's even kind of defensive about it like almost as if he used to be the protege and now Spike's almost replaced him in a way, and he's sort of like, well, you know, I don't need that because I have other stuff going on, and then it's him in the ice cream van and everything. Um, whereas in Giles' dream, there's none of that, like, camaraderie with... There's no affection for Spike. Um, and, you know, he even says, like, I really think Buffy should have killed you. <laughs> so yeah. he's like, he doesn't see any of that, like... Uh, relationship that maybe 
Xander sees. Yeah. Um, and yeah, funny. I mean, you have to wonder how much, like, for all of Xander's, like, it could just be they're both English. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so right. therefore right. they're related. <laughs> therefore they're the same. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the way, like, Spike's even, like, in the little, like, Tweety suit and everything. Like, yeah. like that's not what Spike's like at all. But, you know, he he must be something like Giles. So, yeah. Um, but with Giles, we do get, um, the stuff, and I didn't catch it till the second watch, but when they go into the graveyard, into, mm. like, what seems to be, like, a fair, um, mm-hmm. th- th- this is, uh, like, Slayer training. Like, <laughs> right. like, I didn't catch that, the fr- but this is, like, his dream interpretation of what it's like to train with Buffy is, like... You know, going into the cemetery with, like, this little kid who's a little bit overeager, and she, you know, throws a ball at the vampire, and that's, like, slaying it. Like, you know, and you kind of get this idea that for Giles, Buffy is this little kid, you know, that it's his duty to parent and, you know, keep a, a hold on and make sure she doesn't, like, you know, hurt herself or do anything silly or, you know, uh, make sure she's getting educated properly. Mm. Um, So it kind of tells you a little bit about how he sees their relationship, but I guess how he still sees Buffy too. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so, and you also get the, I mean, there's also a sense though of like that sort of thing isn't possible anymore. Cause like, it's not just Buffy. Right. He's also with Olivia and mm-hmm. who's pushing a baby stroller. Mm-hmm. So like there's this idea of like, you know, family and missed opportunity. Sure. When especially when you see later Olivia sort of sitting there crying. Right. And the baby stroller sort of off and overturned yeah. and you yeah. know um you know that there's these there's sort of this element of failure to all of mm. that too. And, and I mean, nothing, nothing really happens to Buffy in his dream, but there's also the sense of failure when he's like talking at the end there where right before the first slayer attacks him and he's like, you know, I can, I can defeat you mm. with my mind, you know, mm-hmm. like, like I'm smart enough to, I know who you are. I know what's going on. But of course, then she jumps down and like cuts his head open. <laughs> and it's right. like, you know, so there's like these aspects of everything he does is, is failure. Um, even, even though he does sort of see himself in those, in those roles. Um, yeah. And also the singing, <laughs> which yes. now the third time we've seen him yeah. sing, this time he's like, lead vocalist rock star singing right yeah this isn't yeah. like open mic night anymore so no um, but i like how that's like almost the most lucid moment in the whole thing is like that's like the one moment of him actually like just saying his actual like thoughts of like oh it's the spell and we unloose you know we loose this force right. when we did it and willow check the chronicle and 
you know, we have to warn Buffy. It's all the kind of stuff that he would normally say, mm -hmm. but it's like he can only, he has to sing it. Um, it's yeah. like singing gives him greater clarity than, uh, than just speaking would or something. Yeah. And um, I love uh, the name of the song that he sings is the exposition song. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, like this is this is the song that gives the exposition. And of course, and actually, I didn't I didn't um, notice this. So I, I I was sort of looking around um, before we started talking. And exposition has a specific musical connotation too. Oh. Um, thematically, um, you have the exposition of the theme typically before you then go and change it. And usually mm. it's a change like from a major key to like a relative minor key or vice versa. Um, or, I mean, there's other ways that it can be changed and, and kind of okay. depends on the piece, uh, you know, the style of the piece that you're playing, um, how it changes and all that. But um, I thought that's interesting too, because like, like if you're thinking of, of that, so, so, you know, there's the literary exposition of, you know, Hey, this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, and here's the background that we all need to know. And if you didn't get it already, here's what actually is happening. Yeah. Um, but there's also, there's also the, because it's being sung in a song, you know, called, called the exposition song. Yeah. Like there is this idea of like, Oh, this is, there's a change of theme going on here. Mm. Like what are the, you know what is the main theme and and what are the ways that it's changing but still yeah like sort of like a restatement the of the theme before we yeah. change the key kind of yeah which is sort of what this episode is and like, right which i was going to say goes along well with with like the statements we were talking about before with buffy of like you don't you don't know what's ahead like there's yeah there's more to what's coming than than you might ever realize so i think that's significant and also like Giles is the first one to sort you know go going along with all of that he is the first one to sort of reveal yep. who who the yep. uh demon who the power yeah is that they're facing like um and 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 it's subtle but you know he you you couldn't know you never had a watcher you know mm -hmm. it's that uh that revelation of wait you never had a watcher like who would need a watcher? Well, right. Slayer needs a watcher. Like it's right, right. like it all sort of like cascades from that. Well, and it's such a slow reveal of what the first Slayer even looks like. Like it's mm. only gradually that we see who she is. Like at mm. first, it's just kind of little glimpses of like her hair or she's down on the floor or whatever. That it's like I think it's kind of at that point that you even see that she's like a person. And not like mm. a demon or a monster. Like when she's kind of hovering over Giles and you get that like flash of light and you can see her for the first time. So it is sort of like just as he's figuring out who she is, then uh, like that's when the audience gets to see what she looks like for the first yeah. time. Um, yeah, the other thing... Um, worth mentioning too is um uh anya's appearance um you know we saw her she was in xander's dream driving by gesturing um <laughs> yeah. which i saw i thought that sort of goes along too with like this and then here she is doing stand-up but she's like 
reading it off and and kind of over explaining what's going on and yeah, not yeah. really doing it well and it's all this idea of Anya does everything by over gesturing like she she makes the gesture of real like you know what she thinks it is to be kind of human and then that kind of is what gets her by you know so you know and it just sort of right. works out. So it's like even even though she fails, the very act of trying sort of is yeah. enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and but that's funny with the guy saying, "You suck. Quiet, or you'll miss the humorous conclusion." <laughs> right. But then, like, she delivers the punchline terribly, and yeah. like everyone and then laughs. explains the joke. Yeah. 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 Right. She explains the joke, and like everyone's like, "But they all bust out laughing." So it's like, yeah, yeah like does kind of end up working for her yeah so it does Um, sort of work out but also yeah no and interesting um too because if these are because i mean anya and tara are not dreaming like they're not one of the dreamers so like their characters showing up in each of the dreams are almost certainly have to be like manifestations yeah. Of the dreamer. Like not mm-hmm. they're not included. Right. They're as not part participating. Of the group. Yeah. So um so then yeah, like that's like both Xander and Giles, I guess, sort of see Anya re- as re- being somewhat ridiculous mm. in their own ways, you know. Um yeah. and not that like I don't mean like I think, you know, Xander loves Anya in his own way or whatever, but like right. he he's also quite willing with her permission to abandon her you know in a right. somewhat unsafe situation yeah yeah <laughs> you know of driving a car so that he can go do who knows what with you know willow and tara so right you know just that idea of like okay he is a guy but like you know he doesn't quite I don't know. I don't know what to make of that, like, with regard to his thoughts about Anya at this point. Right. But. Well, I did think of that, that it, it's interesting that of all the people that Xander has sort of lustful feelings towards, none of them are Anya in the dream. And yeah. I don't, that doesn't mean, I don't want to take that too far, but I don't think it's insignificant either. You know, that um, maybe it's part of that grass is always greener mentality of, mm. you know, you, he's not dreaming about his girlfriend. You know, he's dreaming about, you know... All the other women. <laughs> all the other women, like the kind of hot, you know, mom and the hot lesbians and all this stuff, but not yeah. like the girl who he actually spends every night with. Um, and, and you even get that wistful feel with Buffy yeah. when when she when calls him brother. brother yeah. And he's like, oh, brother. Yeah. Like... Yeah. You yeah. don't see me that way, right. which we know, like, like, like that's he's not not a surprise, but and he doesn't kind of sexify her in the same way that he does the others. But you do get that wistful feeling of he used to, or he would if he knew it would go somewhere. Thought there would be, um, yeah, you know, right. So, Whereas with like he doesn't really know Tara, and he knows that Willow at one point had feelings for him. So like. Right. In his mind, anyway, that's at least plausible. <laughs> right. Well, and not to, like, throw men under the bus, but it is kind of like the cliche male fantasy of what, you know, the lesbians are like. So, you know, it's not I, shocking that, that Xander I mean, would 
cast them that way. Yeah, you know, straight men anyway. <laughs> well, this, that's true. That's a good yeah, point. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, that's an acknowledgement of it being true, yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we should anyway, move on to Buffy. We should, because um, we kind of got talking back to Zander yeah. again. Um, well, speaking of Anya, um, because Buffy dreams about both Tara and Anya, um, which is interesting, and... That creeped me out, the part where she wakes up and Anya's in the other bed, um, oh, saying, like, really? Buffy, Buffy, you have to wake up, you have to wake up. I, I don't know why. There was something about that that, like, hmm. I think just the idea of, like, waking up to someone saying that, and in that kind of, like, slightly panicked way, like, that just, like, I don't know why. And also someone who, like, isn't supposed to be there. She's not supposed like, to be there. why would Anya ever be in that other bed? And it's that... It, I don't know what's creepy about it, but it's something about the way it's shot. Like, the fact mm. that it's, like, from a slight distance. Mm. So, like, it even took me a second to realize, like, okay, where are we? Who is that? What's going on? Like, just that, you know, sure. waking out of a deep sleep into, like, you don't know what's going on. That mm -hmm. was just sort of like a... Even more than when, because by the time the slayer, the the first slayer is hanging over her bed, you kind of know something's going to be there. So I'm sort of ready for like the, the shock jump kind of moment. But like, just the image of Anya in the bed, like begging her to wake up. I don't know why that kind of freaked me out. Sure. Um. Sure. So then it cuts to another bed. Um. Which, okay, they're talking about the bed that Buffy and Faith made. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we made that bed. Who'd you make it for? I thought you were here to tell me. So I always, in their dreams of Buffy and Faith together, I always thought they were in that apartment um, of Faith's. But now... It kind of seems like they're in Buffy's old room at her yeah. mom's house. And at the end, when she goes and kind of looks in her room, that's the bed she's looking at. So right. I didn't know if I understood that right. Because um, at first I thought they were in that apartment, and then I wasn't sure. So, right. yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's meant to be ambiguous. Okay. Um, and I did I don't. Catch... I don't have a better answer than okay. that. <laughs> I, and I did catch, um, I mean, we had the reference before to Little Sister in yeah. in the dream. Which Faith said. Which Faith said. And now I, I did, I would be pretty not paying attention if I didn't notice Tara's Be Back Before Dawn. You yeah. know, so I know the name. So now I know you and, said there was a reference that I missed, but I got this one. So, well, and the other, so the other reference actually kind of ties these two together and okay. it's not, it's very subtle. I didn't even know it till I read it. So, uh -huh. um, I certainly would not, you know, say anything to anyone who, who missed it. Yeah. Um, but in, in the season and, and, that dream sequence was in the season three finale. Um, <clears throat> so Faith, uh, in the dream sequence, Faith says, Little Miss Muffet counting down from 730. And there's um, 
there's on the clock in this episode um, in the dream it says 7 30 um uh-huh. and and Buffy is like oh it's so late and Tara oh the clock's completely wrong like uh-huh. you know it's one of those like sort of like they call it out but like it is I think what I think the key here is that you they're using that to tie the two episodes together mm-hmm. and then you know the reference to little sis and mm-hmm. the reference to dawn mm-hmm. you know both sort of next adjacent to those um you know references is is where the ties are so gotcha. i yeah that that's kind of a stretch that's what i read and mm-hmm. seems to be accurate um sure. and i mean but interesting that i mean a season ago mm-hmm. you know whedon's dropping hints about stuff yeah. that's still yet to come i mean we yeah. haven't actually seen dawn right yet. um but it, this is you know again another reference here so yeah um yeah and and again interesting that it's tara that's the 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 voice of all the she's kind of for buffy the voice of all this kind of prophecy both about um what you know what lies ahead with dawn and then at the end as like the speaker for the slayer yeah. that even for you know interesting Speaking that for the dead. buffy yeah there you go buffy doesn't know tara that well but right she's kind of you know and whether that's buffy that's putting her in that role or whether some other you know whether that's the 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 psychic, you know, link mm. to the Slayer or whatever, she kind of is this, you know, voice that it's kind of like, pay attention to what Tara says because it's important. Um, you know, even the way Buffy says, I thought you were here to tell me that. It's almost like you could kind of wonder whether that means more than just in the dream. Like, mm. what is Tara here for? You know, does she have a part yeah. to play too? Um, well, and... And we've talked a little bit about, you know, Tara does have natural sort of Wiccan abilities and stuff right. that like, and and even actually going back to, and I know like we're crossing dreams here, but um, going back to Willow's conversation about like, with Tara about like, you know, Tara saying, you don't, you don't really know me yet. Like, mm-hmm. um, Willow's yeah. like, oh, well, is do I have your name right at least? Like, and Tara's like, no, you know that. Like, but like there is, there is sort of mysteriousness about Tara that there's something at least from, I think both Buffy and Willow's dreams, you know, something that they seem to be picking up on that. Maybe there's, there's something different about her. Like they don't know what that is yet, but Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, like, it's hard to say, like you said, like, is that, is that the Slayer, you know, the first Slayer sort of picking out Tara to be her mouth, or is it Buffy, is Buffy the one choosing, you know, in that instance? It's hard to say. Um, Then, well... (laughs) Before we go on to Riley, um, the little bit of Joyce living in a hole in the wall, yeah. um, which is like, again, just one of those really weird, you could, 
I could totally see having that dream. And like, yeah, I don't know what to do with that one. That could just be one of those random bits of brain, you know, doing strange things. Or I don't know, maybe it's a feeling of guilt for having maybe not been home as much, not seen her mom. She feels bad about, are you, are you okay in there? Are you lonely? You know, do you need anything? Like this feeling of I'm leaving her in a less than ideal kind of situation. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. And and her mom saying, it's fine. I'm fine here. You go be with your friends. Like that's totally what, what your mom would say if she was living Mm -hmm. in a wall. Um, Yeah. Well, and it's, I, I always got it. The impression that, yeah, it was like, is Buffy's sort of closing off her own mom because like, mm. you know, at the same time, it's like Buffy just walks away from her. Like right. she gets distracted right. and just like completely goes and ignores her. And right. Right. Maybe for a good reason, but that's constantly what Buffy has been doing the last four seasons is, right. you know, walking away, leaving, sneaking out of the house or just going off to college and never coming home. And, you know, so like that's sort of, that's sort of the way I've always read it is like her mom's like, Oh, you know, I'm finding things to do. I'm making lemonade and you know, (laughs) yeah, whatever else. Yeah. And she kind of says like, well, you you could punch through the wall, but by then Buffy's like distracted and walking away. So yeah. Um, yeah, just a kind of funny little moment. Um, but then we get Riley, um, and his now, because we saw in the frame that he's off for the debriefing. Um, mm-hmm. But now in the dream, he's sort of joined forces with the government and is planning, you know, world domination because that's what they do. Um, right. <laughs> and I love that they're going to build a pillow fort. Yeah, yeah. Like, we should make a fort. I'll, build, I'll get the pillows. Again, like, is that Buffy's assessment of, like, what you know, men do like, it, it's right. just like all this warfare and stuff is just an elaborate version of the pillow fort. Basically. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And again, that kind of play pretending like, every, like whether it's mm. slaying the vampires in the fair or whatever, like play acting at being, you know, warriors and grown ups and everything. Um, mm-hmm but they're all still just the same like kids inside. Um, And then the reveal that it's Adam that he's talking to, um, which I didn't get until like exactly when he wanted me to get it, you know, in like when the lighting kind of changes and you kind of get a better look at him and you go, Oh, I can see it's the same actor now. Um, And yeah. Yeah, I mean, the voice is different. Yeah. And, like, obviously without makeup and stuff, it seems yeah. different. But um, once they kind of showed him, I could see it. Like, there was enough yeah. of his facial features there that right. he is sort of recognizable. Um, You know, and, and she asks what his name is. Before Adam, not a man among us can remember. So it's like Adam becomes more than just Adam. He becomes, like... Adam as in mankind, you know, like right, right. who are any of us before, you know, yeah, well, before and, who and, we are now. And that, I mean, the name Adam just even means man, right? Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. that's just like, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, 
And also when he kind of is talking about, uh, you know, aggression and saying, you know, they're kind of the same and, you know, aggression is natural. And you get Buffy saying, we're not demons, but you have the first Slayer right behind her when she says it. So it's Mm. like, right as she's asserting that, you have this like looming, um, I guess, image of a more demonic version of herself, like kind of what she could be. Um, Yeah. She totally. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, that brings up a good question because there's clearly, yeah, I mean, there's clearly like deep primal magical forces going on here. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the slayer, like she, the first slayer talks about, you know, I'm destruction uh yeah. no friends just kill you know mm. like these are very demonic sounding philosophies if we even want to call them ph- like you know words sure. to live by kind of thing like is there you know something less than uh holy <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like that sort of underpins this the whole slayer thing and and so there's there's that question and and i mean you know, from from maybe not the very beginning, but but close to the beginning, we've even been talking about in various contexts, more so in Angel, I feel at this point, but like in Buffy too, just about like are all demons bad, and does being a demon, you know, necessarily mean evil, mm-hmm. and and so what are sort of the nuances between those things, and so like, I mean, definitely, I think you know, before the reveal that this is a first layer, like you do think absolutely this is some sort of demonic force mm-hmm. or or presence or whatever being. Um so yeah, like I, I think whether that's actually the case or not, I think there's all the hints there that you know, again, like you know, with the killing and the destruction and, and whatever, like that there's there's some very fine lines being, you yeah. know, uh, uh, balanced upon here. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So you get the idea that this appearance of the first layer is kind of either like a warning or a temptation of kind of what giving into, like the last episode was primeval. So it's sort of like, what are the primeval forces of the Slayer? And what would it be to sort of just totally right. let them take over? Um, and, yeah, and I like the kind of... I mean, I like the way they styled the first Slayer, just like the way she looks and everything, that you get how ancient she is, that, you know, and how long a line this has gone back, Mm. you know, how far into, you know, human history there has been a slayer. Um, that's just kind of a cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it goes definitely all the way back. So yeah, you have, you know, I, there's also sort of the aural sound of primeval, right? So you have the, I mean, primeval means ancient, you know, Mm -hmm. prehistoric sort of, instinctive as well and like all those Mm -hmm. kind of things but like it's also like prime evil Mm 
like mm-hmm. the first evil, you know, which we've seen mm-hmm. in the past. Um, right. And not for a while, but like, you know, when when they say the first, like that's right. That's how the first evil sort of called himself, you know, was right. the fir- I'm the first. So, so like. I'm not saying we should tie those things directly together or anything like there's not any evidence in the text to do that. And I, and, and they're like, I'm not saying that we get that later either, but I do think that there, that there's some interesting sort of parallels there that we can sort of look at. Well, and um, it's, it's, it's surprising because you would feel like if there was a link, they would want to set up, um, the first layer as this like beacon of good to oppose the first evil. But like you said, like the slayer is not, uh, without her own darkness and complications. And like, is she evil? No, not necessarily, but she's not wholly good either. She's sort of, she's sort of a little bit on the fence. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, well, it's like the whole thing in like, you know, in like Tolkien's Legendarium, it's like the eagles aren't evil, but they're also not safe. <laughs> you know, right. like just right. not being evil doesn't mean you're safe being around them <laughs> per yeah. se. Yeah. Um, and that you, you or, you know, or like Bjorn or, you know, any number of characters or creatures. Yeah. You know. In, yeah. You get in, these sort of free agents. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like they're they live by their own rules and they they are dangerous and they're not necessarily going to just kill you on a whim. Although that's not necessarily ruled out either. Like, right. Right. <laughs> um, especially if you are threatening something that they believe in or mm-hmm. love or whatever. So yeah, there is this, this definite idea. And so, you know, the question being there is how much of that does Buffy have? And you know, how much of it is passed on to her and how much of it is triggered now Mm. by this spell that Mm -hmm. they, that they perform together. So who knows? All right. All very good questions. Yeah. Which will be answered perhaps next season. (laughs) Perhaps. (laughs) All right. Very, very strong little adverb there. Yeah. All right. Well, we should move on. Um, yes. And discuss some Doctor Who. Now, you mentioned that this episode has some bizarre, maybe, reception, or. Sure. Maybe um, bizarre isn't the right word, but like. Con- yeah. Con- conflicting or, or. Yeah, I'd say it's kind of a polarizing. Um, I com- maybe misleadingly, but I compared it to Love and Monsters in the way, and all I meant by that was it will frequently turn up on, you know, the the lists of worst episodes, um, hmm. but then not because it's one of, it's not one of the ones where it's just sort of, you know, dull and nobody really loves it that much. It's definitely one of the ones where you kind of have a love it or hate it type, you know, so mm. even if it may turn up at the bottom, you'll get, you know, the people who are the staunch defenders of it um, and to, you know, insist that 
it's really good and that those, you know, the people who are rating it lowly are sort of missing the point maybe. Um, so yeah, I had a few production things. Um, so it was written by Neil Cross, who this is his first uh, episode in the show. Um, it's actually not the first episode that he wrote. Um, there's one coming up later this season that he wrote first okay. that Moffat was happy with. And so hmm. he then went back and wrote this. Um, but he uh, was one of the head writers for a show called Spooks. Um, and he oh, yeah. also he also created the show Luther with Idris Elba, um, which is quite popular right now. Um, okay in the UK. So, um, he's, you know, and those are shows that I think have gotten a lot of acclaim. So he's like a pretty well-known, you know, yeah. screenwriter right now. Yeah. Interesting. I, I actually watched probably at least five or six seasons of spooks. I know it okay. had at least like 10. Yeah. And I don't like know, seasons. I don't know what years he did. Mm -hmm. He may not have been the head writer for all of them, but sure. at least for a couple of years. Um, I and mean, I, I just remember it was a relatively long-lived show. Long-running show. Um, had, like, a, quite a few changes of cast, but okay. still kept going. Right, right. <laughs> so maybe he was in charge of a particular era or something. Um, yeah. And Luther's one of the ones on my, you know, on my net, my ever-growing Netflix queue. I'll get to that someday. Um, but it's made kind of Idris Elba, you know. Well, Idris Elba's in a lot of stuff, so... I shouldn't say it made him a name, but it's his kind of big show right now. Um, but yeah, just for the, to give you some perspective with the reception, um, on the 2014 Doctor Who magazine poll, which is the one they did for the 50th anniversary, this was number 233 out of 241. <laughs> so mm. it's way down. And it's the lowest Moffat era episode on, okay. on the poll. So Wow. It did not do so well. Um, and now they just, Doctor Who, there's a website called Doctor Who TV that just did a poll a couple weeks ago of just the New Who episodes because it was the 10th anniversary of New Who um, last right. month. And it did a bit better there. It went 72 out of 97. So, um, so yeah, still bottom half. But... Still bottom half, but maybe not quite the 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 hate that it had last year um right. and just kind of looking at people's criticisms i mean we can talk about how we feel about it 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 seems like some of the things it's being criticized for are some of the things that people might deride something like love and monsters for that um it, it has a kind of sentimentality to it that rubs some people the wrong way. Like, you know, there's the singing and all that kind of thing. Um, sure. There's the kind of silly rubbery aliens, you know, which again, push some people's buttons. Um, you know, some people complained about, uh, because you know, aliens should look realistic because aliens should look realistic. Um, and there's, you know, some plot holes. There's maybe some not, the best effects ever, you know, sure. there's going to be the people who say there's too much fantasy. It's not sci-fi enough. You know, all these things are things that I think at this point in Dr. Who, if you don't embrace all of those elements, I'm kind of not sure what show you're watching. 
Um, right. <laughs> but maybe they're watching a different show from me. And I, on the one hand, I can, it's one of those things where I can see what they're saying. I just don't agree with it. You know, like yeah. I understand the things they're picking out. I just disagree that those are the, problems necessarily. Um, so, oh, sorry. Do you have any other production no, notes? No, like? no, go. So the the one thing, and really this is the only thing that kind of bugged me, mm-hmm. is the face on the sun there, mm. like the 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 and the like here, jack the like jack o' lantern smile. Yeah, actually, you know what I thought of? I thought of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man from <laughs> Ghostbusters, especially yeah. the scene yeah. when they light him on fire and his <laughs> face is like all glowy in yeah. like the flame and it like is like, like in yeah. shock and whatever. That I could have, like I could have done away with it. Uh-huh. Like it seems like perhaps they could have found a better way to sort of show emotion from that than like giving it a sort of humanoid face. Yeah. Uh, you know. So I wasn't in love with that. But. I. You know. I've mentioned before. When I've had problems with sort of the science. And the this yeah. and that. And like. Okay. Like the. You know. Whole jetting across from like asteroid to asteroid. With like no spacesuits Right. On like a moped type right. thing. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. But like. That's not less silly than, say, like, dragging the Earth with the TARDIS across right. the universe. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so, right. like you said, like, if you're not willing to sort of accept these types of things at this point, then I, I would agree with you that you maybe Doctor Who isn't the show for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's just funny. And maybe that's testament to how varied the show is that. People sure. can have completely conflicting ideas of what Doctor Who should be and somehow manage to maintain those separate views because mm. it's almost like which era of the show is for you, you know, and yeah. and there are certain episodes that are just going to like push, you know, the wrong sort of buttons. Um, sure. But, and there are certain elements, I think, in this that do remind me more strongly of the of the Davies era than a lot of the other Moffat episodes. Like the fact that you have this marketplace with all these big goofy rubbery aliens, like you don't get that much with Moffat. Um, I feel like mm-hmm. he scaled back on that. Like that feels like the, the end of the world to me, you know, like with, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, you know, the mocks of Balhoon and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, or like the Slovene and uh, like, that kind of big silliness maybe is just not the kind of thing that maybe so maybe it stands out more in the Moffat era than it would have a couple seasons ago because he's sort of moved the show into something slightly different. Um, mm-hmm. So there's something kind of like big and over the top about it um, that I think just made it kind of an easy target <laughs> to some people. So Sure. But but I think actually this will be fun to pair with the Buffy episode because I feel like this episode, as much as it is kind of over the top and silly and sentimental, it also kind of tries to tap into like something 
occasionally a little bit more mythic. So, you know, I think when we get talking about like the doctor stuff um, in his speech at the end, um, it has some really kind of interesting ideas behind it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I don't necessarily want to jump to that speech, but just in talking and sort of bringing up other episodes that it reminded me of. I mean, I think if you're not reminded of like the Satan pit and Mm -hmm. its companion there of, you know, him yelling at a big God, like slash devil, like being Mm -hmm. then the, and, and also, and actually a very strong sense of sort of agnosticism that I got in this episode that I also got in that episode of just the, like, I, I can't deny the existence of what I'm seeing in front of me, but at the same time, like, I don't know what it means, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like for, you know, for that sort of thing. And, and anyway, so yeah, like there's, there's definitely these, um, references or Mm -hmm. similarities to other shows, to other episodes, um, that I think we can talk through, but yeah, I, I definitely, definitely saw some of that as well. Um, yeah. The other one that always jumps out to me is the shot of the doctor and Clara sort of from behind them and they're backlit by the big red glowing planet always mm. looks exactly to me like the doctor and Rose in the end of the world when, you know, the sun is dying and expanding and there's that shot of them from behind sort of with the red sun, you know, it just Mm. feels, um, it feels the same and it looks pretty similar. So I think, and maybe that's part of this being in the anniversary year. I feel like Moffat is kind of trying to place in these little references to other episodes past, um, and kind of remind you where, where the story's been so far. Sure. Sure. Um, but I think and, we wanted to start with like the, yeah. the, the world and the, the situation. And everything. Yeah. I don't know how much we need to talk about it, but yeah, I just wanted to sort of at least make sure we acknowledge the setting and all mm-hmm. of that. The, the rings of Akaten, mm-hmm. um, which, so yeah, is it a planet or or is it like a sun? I guess I was thinking of it as like a sun. <laughs> I was always confused about that. I think it's a planet. But okay, so like maybe I think like it's a big like gas giant. A gas giant. Because yeah, okay. yeah, and that the rings the worlds that were well, I think what's confusing is in the beginning they say there are these seven worlds which orbit the same sun, but they all have this belief about this particular planet. I think that's the distinction there. Um, but so like, yeah, <laughs> but I think yeah. this is a planet that has rings around well, it. And like these bits of, you know, meteoroid are where all these what I, pyramids are built and everything. From what I understand, I mean, the difference between like a gas giant and a star are like several orders of magnitude perhaps, but like, mm-hmm it's a big ball of gas. It's just not flaming like a star might be, you know, sure. like it doesn't, it hasn't built up the pressure yet to kind of have the same, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I don't think we need to quibble, but yeah, like I, I wasn't entirely clear on that, but anyway, um, 
so yeah so and so on one of these uh rocks that are orbiting uh it within the ring mm-hmm. orbiting this uh planet you get this temple of uh wherein initially it was thought the old god is sitting until mm-hmm. they sort of realize the old god is actually like the planet um and that this is just like its messenger or its whatever. Right. Um, and that every thousand years you get this alignment of sorts between mm-hmm. the different rings. And <clears throat> uh, they have this festival of offerings where everyone brings something special to them that is offered up. And and you get the later explanation. So you get the sense... You get sort of like differing explanations, right? Like at one point it's like it's you have to sing to tell it stories. But then Mm -hmm. it's like, well, no, he'll eat your soul. But then Mm -hmm. like what is the soul? It's the stories Mm -hmm. of yourself and Mm -hmm. and how, you know, these offerings are the potential stories or the stories that are like sort of locked within there you know it, it's the meaning behind the things that have right. the stories that is what it's sort of feeding off or off of yeah um yeah so, and that and that the people there use like the the they trade kind that's of their things currency with, with yeah. sentimental value for currency like i have in my notes um like i wrote down memories equals stories equals souls equal nourishment so like yeah. which i think is a very doctor who idea like that's pretty much what we've been saying about memories all along is that they are kind of the thing which seems to define people and meaning um and memories and stories are sort of linked Um, right and that that is your soul and your essence and your value and without memories you're a different person or without the same memories you're a different person as like Donna is sort of the best example of that. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I kind of actually like that premise of like the stories being the thing that it wants. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about the characters. So, well, so let's talk about um, Mary. Mm hmm. Mary Galil, Queen of Years, mm-hmm. um, which I abbreviated MG slash QOY in my <laughs> notes. Um, because that's a lot easier to It is. To it say. is. I could have just said Mary, I guess. But yeah. Um, the. So, yeah, the idea that like there's this succession of singers, mm-hmm. but then like, I guess. And maybe this is where some of the plot holes come in. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, like, I'm not entirely sure. So, like, the Queen of Years is selected. Yeah. And, like, after, you know, one of them dies or is sacrificed or whatever. But, like, this thing only happens once every thousand years. So I, I was trying to figure out, like, how that works. Like, do they just keep selecting new young girls each, you know, several years, like, right. during that period or or 
what exactly is going on. But Yeah, I mean, so it seems like either one of two things. Like, either she's very long-lived um, or will be. Um, right. Or uh, I kind of got that idea, too, that, like, maybe there's always a Queen of Years, but not all of the Queen of Years participate in the festival like maybe it's only every thousand years that whoever is the queen of years at the time has to do so they're still passing on this oral tradition of all Mm -hmm. their chronicles but it just so happens that for this girl it's you know she drew the straw that she gets to um you know perform at the festival i guess um and i definitely always had like a like dalai lama-esque you know they don't say anything about like reincarnation but it's almost like you know as soon as one queen dies um kind of slayerish actually like when one dies then maybe that that spirit or that you know there's something about some essence which is transferred to the next one, you know, right. um, that they then that goes into like a child, I guess, who's then sort of raised as the next queen of years. Um, right. Because, I mean, she knows an awful lot of songs and stories for yes. a girl her age. Yeah. But you also don't get the sense that she has to do this every day of like singing to the old god you know that this is like a right. a a once in a lifetime or once in a several generations sort of opportunity and that's why she's she may know every chronicle and every song but that doesn't mean she's ready to kind of perform this ceremony sure. um so it has to be kind of coaxed into it by clara mm. um and, I mean, with the relationship with Clara, too, I mean, I think it's definitely significant that she's a little girl, you know, so you get the connection, yeah. too, of Clara with kids, um, you sure. know, that she's always kind of the nanny or the governess who has kind of a way with children. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm not sure where to go next because everything I want to say about everything has to do with like the doctor and, um, yeah. And the old God and everything. So the the only other thing I I guess I would say sort of along the lines of like Mary and her stuff is like, I like the doctor sort of, which this is, um, like his his whole his whole stardust sort of explanation mm. you know to her you know all the elements in your body were forged many millions of years ago in the heart of a faraway star that exploded and died so like his whole like which sounds very like you know the beginning of that sounds like all right like very scientific and mm-hmm. far away but like the conclusion of it is and therefore like there's no combination of these materials into this person that can ever be repeated. There's only mm-hmm. one you and there will never be another. And like, you know, that whole idea of sacrifice and yeah. and waste of a life um, 
of of a unique life and soul and memories and all of that. Um, well, and it's kind of exactly the same thing as as Clara's father's thing about that leaf had to grow in just that right way and right. you know be torn off in just that exact moment so it could hit me in the face and so you could come and if in one of those things you know if a different Adam had been in the wrong place that might not have happened and yeah, everything would be different yeah sort of butterfly effect yeah, yeah. um so yeah, no, and, that is cool. And I like the doctor's inclusion of that, of uh, his little thing of shoes and ships and sealing wax. That he kind of, like, gets distracted by a little bit of Alice in Wonderland and then kind of veers yeah. back on course. But um, that always yeah. makes me smile. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, I just want... Um, what was I trying to think of? So, like, yeah, basically just trying to think of, like, that idea, which I think then going into, like, the discussion of the Doctor and everything, like, okay, this applies to Mary and and to anyone. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I mean, he's talking to her specifically there. Um, but then the same is true, just as true, if not more so true, when he's the one who goes up. And it's mm. like offering himself, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? So like we we do get like these again, like these sort of little bits of hypocriticalness mm -hmm. and sort of the doctor and his his way of dealing with other like you shouldn't sac your, sacrifice yourself. It's okay for me to do it though. Right, <laughs> you know, right. like that whole that whole idea. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Well, there's something kind of parental about that, right? Like, it's not, it don't do as I say, not as I do, you know. Um, kind of telling the child the rules to protect them, and then going and like contradicting them because you're the grown up and it's your job to protect. Um, there's also um, so not only is there like the contrast with what the doctor then goes and does, but there's also, as he's saying this to Mary and his focus is on her, in the background we have Clara, you know, who's hearing this and getting all misty eyed. And we heard about how, you know, her whole birth is, you know, dependent on this leaf and how important it is and how she's unique and everything. But also we've met other versions of her before. So there's this kind of dissonance going on with, okay, you know, he says there's only one Mary Galell and there will never be another. But, you know, we have Clara back there who maybe isn't unique. You know, maybe mm -hmm. there are other, you know, versions or, you know, people like her who were made under different circumstances. So you get this kind of like, just a slight little reference to this ongoing, you know, mystery of Clara that he's trying to solve. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I, f I found um, what I was trying to think of before. Um, it's, it's a quote by Carl Sagan, um, who doesn't use star dust, but he says star stuff, mm. that, we're all, that we're all star stuff. 
the cosmos is within us. We are made of star stuff. We are the way for the universe to know itself, um, which I I would imagine perhaps the 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 writer of this episode Had was thinking mind. of like that sure. because it's you know it. I mean, obviously, he's more expansive and sort of poetic about it, but yeah, um, has that same sort of feel. Yeah. Uh, yeah Yeah, well and it gives a feeling of again to go with the agnostic thing i mean you can read a kind of divine meaning into that of you know you're created as you know a unique person but there's also just the purely you know chance circumstantial version of that too of Mm -hmm. you are this unique combination of elements and atoms that are combined in such a way that there is no other one like it. Um, So sort of by default, you are, you know, without comparison. But again, then we have Clara, who maybe seemingly contradicts this rule. So, you know, just worth keeping an eye on that idea, I think. Sure. Well, and yeah, I mean... So let's go there because that's where we were starting the episode, right? Is the doctor trying to figure out mm-hmm. how Clara can even be, you know, right. what, what's he say is, is she's not possible and yet she is. So like those, sta- you know, that statement and the fact of her existence can't both be true. <laughs> like right. something has to be false. Right. Um, Right, so, right. Hence the statement, she's not possible. Like, there's something paradoxical, you know, yeah. um, about her. Yeah, so it was funny, you know, you were wondering what what's going to happen. Is is he going to go and try to figure out this mystery, or is he going to skip right ahead to, you know, tomorrow when he can go pick her up? So we get the little vignettes of him trying to kind of go back along her timeline, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and... her dad does give this kind of very sentimental speech about, you know, the most important leaf in human history and everything. And like, you know, his sort of lines to get to, to get the girl and everything. But, you know, mostly what we see, I think is that she has a pretty ordinary upbringing, you know, like Mm -hmm. he doesn't seem to find anything, uh, out of the ordinary or special or, you know, manipulated about who she is that he can see. Right. Right. Yeah, no. Um, He doesn't, he kind of gets frustrated at that fact too. Right. That there's nothing really notable, Um, which begs the question then of, so what is the truth about her existence? Mm. And is it something that has nothing to do with her growing up, but is it something that he causes by having her with him? Um, And of course there's also that brief, but very significant, I would argue moment of the TARDIS not letting her in. Right. And she says, I think it, it hates me. It doesn't like like me. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't like me. Yeah. Like there's this, she can sort of perceive that the TARDIS is, alive or at least has a consciousness of some type and that 
the TARDIS doesn't like her for some reason, which we can sort of then deduce, well, why might that reason be? Well, it's the, she's not possible. It's the Mm. paradoxical nature of her existence that we can imagine the TARDIS probably wouldn't like. Right. Um, well, and to kind of stay on that note of her kind of impossibility too, um, we can come back and talk about other stuff, but at the end, uh, you know, you get him kind of not giving her the truth of, you know, uh, how she has the memory of seeing him at the, in the cemetery after her Mm. mom's funeral. And he, you know, and she says, why were you there? And he doesn't tell her, you know, what's going on. He kind of lies or fudges the truth and says, oh, you remind me of somebody that died. Um, so you get her sort of... Which um, is true. It's it's true. It's kind of a half-truth. Um, it he, She does a little more than remind him of somebody. Um, but anyway, you get... You get that, and then you, she kind of, you know, tells him off, I guess, for, uh, you know, maybe trying to replace, use her to sort of replace somebody else, mm-hmm. which, you know, isn't quite what's going on, but maybe there's some truth in that as well. Um, like, yeah, it like, wouldn't, wouldn't be the first time. Right, right. And, like, you know, the fact that he came looking for her specifically for a purpose, you know, that he, you know, has this mystery that he's trying to figure out. Um, and I wanted to quote something that, uh, Jane, one of the regular commenters on, uh, Phil Sandifer's TARDIS, uh, Eruditorum website, um, she, uh, had a quote where she kind of summed up this episode and said, uh, that it functions metaphorically. Clara is Mary and the doctor is grandfather. The doctor mm-hmm. wanting to consume Clara's story to figure out her mystery as opposed to appreciating her for who she really is is what makes him monstrous. And then she kind of links, you know, the vigil, these sort of, you know, aliens that try to feed Mary to grandfather as like, mm-hmm. you know, the Akaten society, you know, who are kind of aiding, you know, sacrificing this young girl to to kind of satisfy their God. So I think that's a pretty interesting reading that, I mean, I want to talk about the links between the doctor and grandfather, because I think there's a bunch of them that are kind of obvious, even with this little allegory aside, but um, to kind of look at it that way, you know, you get the link of the uniqueness of Mary with the questionable uniqueness of Clara and the fact that that is what the doctor seems mostly um, at this point, not that he doesn't like Clara, but he it does seem like he's very interested in how she came to be in all these different places, maybe more so than in the uniqueness of her person. So sure. there's something a little bit ominous about it, um, mm. I think. Yep. Yeah. Um, so and I guess we can yeah. I mean we might as well talk about that I mean the big 
link to me is the use of the term grandfather. Um, you know, that we get sure. a very uh, distinct reference early on when he shows up with Clara. Like, oh, I came here with my granddaughter. So we're kind of reminded that yeah. he was a grandfather once. And right, then, and she's kind of taken aback by that, like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and then uh, the fact that they that's what they call the old god is grandfather. Um, and I think in his big speech at the end, a lot of what he accuses grandfather of could maybe, you know, turn back around a bit towards him. Um, sure. You know, there's... Uh, you know, he talks about, you know, the people who live in terror of you and your judgment and these people that, you know, sacrifice themselves and devote themselves to you, you know, you kind of think of the monsters who live in fear of his judgment and the companions who maybe sacrifice themselves for him. Um, and, you know, he says, you're not a god, you're just a parasite eaten out with envy and longing for the lives of others. Um you feed on them, on the memory of love and loss and birth and death and joy and sorrow. And it makes me think of, you know, those episodes where he says, you know, I'm this old and I can't really feel the same way that I used to anymore. So, um, mm. you know, I just think, like, we get a lot of links between the Doctor and the monsters, but I think this is one of the, maybe the biggest examples that we've gotten. Um and it kind of gives some ominous overtones to him, like consuming the lives and the stories and the souls of others. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly the most flattering comparison that we've had. No, no. Yeah. Um, so. With Clara. Mm hmm. Um, I want to talk about like the the well. There's the whole like her conversation, um, kind of going back to what you're saying about her being the nanny and and all of that. Her conversation with Mary about the being terrified of getting lost mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff, but also like linking that to with what her mother said about, I'll always find you, you know, um, which is sort of the trigger memory that she has to, to pull out the leaf mm -hmm. and use it as, you know, this is, this is everything that could have, could have been. Yeah. Um, and it, so it kind of made me think, so, you know, you have the discussions about like the stardust and all the different things that sort of pull together to, you know, physically make you, but this is like the, um, I almost said psychological, but that's not quite right. Like the, the metaphysical equivalent of that, maybe like the, the idea of everything that happened, um, in Clara's life is what mm -hmm. led her to this. And so like, like the father might've been sort of joking about this is the most important leaf in human history, mm -hmm. you know, to, you know, win the girl or whatever. But then, like, it's what he saved and what then his wife slash Clara's mother saved and put in the book. And 
you know, when Claire's mother died, you know, it was mm-hmm. still in the book and sort of stayed there and whatever, but became like a thing that was precious because it, it, re- it came to represent all of those stories and all mm-hmm. of those uh, potential stories, which is what Clara gets into talking about that. It's that it's not just, uh, it's not just the past. She says it's the whole future that never happened, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, the fact that the very fact that um, her mother died is kind of what makes it important and what gives it this meaning of, you know, that there could have been more of a future with them and that, mm-hmm. um, and that expands very quickly exponentially, you know, there are millions and millions of unlived days for every day we live um and infinity all the days that never came and all these are my mom's and just that that idea of like it's kind of interesting because you could almost take that for any significant thing in a person's life like Mm -hmm. you know i mean i could have a rock that i picked up at a lake at the camp where i used to work you know and yeah that could have significance but like there's something special about the fact that Clara's maybe it's just even in her recognition of that and that that's what makes it important to her. And it like, you know, we talked about Willow sort of faking it till you make it like this is, this is the leaf version of that. Like it, it wasn't really the most important leaf in human history until like actually it became that. Yeah. So like, you know, by, by almost calling it that, then it does become important and it gives importance and, and all of those associations build, you know, one upon the other until eventually, I mean, it does, it saves an entire, mm-hmm. you know, civilization basically, right. you know, right. so it does kind of become the most important leaf in human yeah. history in yeah. that way. So, um, yeah, just just interesting how that develops. And I, I like there's a parallel there between that and like again the stardust stuff where it's like mm-hmm. it's this unique path that this leaf, you know, almost almost forest gump like, you know, with the right. feather floating, right. you know. Right. Like, you know, it's that it's this very unique individual path, you know, that nothing else could have taken, but also like in a way it was made by the people who, you know, came into contact with it, um, you know, to become, so like, there's this, again, we get back to this idea of like the dual fate and free will. It's not fate versus free will, but it's like, there is this sort of fatalistic, you know, thing about it, you know, it's just going through its life, but there's also these choices that people made to give it significance, you know, over the course of its life. Um, so eh, anyway, yeah, no, I think, and I like especially the bit about it actually does become, it ends up saving the doctor and saving the entire, you know, the the civilization, but potentially, you know, I think Mary has a line about how he'll consume us and then he'll consume the rest of the world. So like, potentially the whole universe, you know, hinges on this leaf. Yeah, depending on how far it can how actually. How far he can go. Um, grow, yeah, and stuff. So. So, you know, and that the doctor's uniquely uh, full story, 
gets, you know, the, the god pretty full, but it takes, like, the infinite potential of the leaf to really, mm -hmm. like, overwhelm him. Um, right. But, but I do like the doctor's, you know, at least his attempt to fill it up with his, like, the story of his life. <laughs> and, like, how, yeah. you know, enormous it is. And, uh, you know, I think that's a pretty... You know, for for all the things that people complain about in this episode, um, I think the the doctor's speech at the end is usually one of the more iconic moments that, you know. Oh, yeah. A lot of people sort of praise that speech and that performance, um, you know, especially I, my favorite is the when he when he gets to the end and he's getting more and more sort of passionate and it ends with the. Take it all, baby. <laughs> Every <laughs> time it gets to that, I laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. And, and I mean, and it's funny because, like, now we've, you know, I mean, we're in the seventh season. And yeah. we've seen a lot of the things that he's talking about here. Like, right. it's no longer, like, it's not like Christopher Eccleston saying, like. Right. I feel you know, the turn I've, of the earth and all that. Right. Yeah. yeah like these sort of nebulous things that we don't really have a good sense of, but this is okay. We didn't see him walk away from the great time war, but we know the effect that that had on mm -hmm. him, you know? So, um, but we did see we, the passing of the time Lords, like not the first time, but we saw the second time when they yeah. tried to come back, you know, yeah. saw the birth of the universe. Okay. We might not have been there for that, but we, we were there when he went to the end of time, mm -hmm. you know, as it ran out moment by moment and the, you know, all of the things that that led to with the master and everything. Yeah. And, you know, walked in universe where the laws of physics were devised by the mind of the madman. And, you know, again, like we weren't necessarily there for all of these things, but we've been with him long enough to know that he's been to other universes and yeah. you know has traveled back and forth between these different things and that um you know i've seen things you wouldn't believe i've lost things you will never understand you know like all these things it's like so much more i would say i mean not that they weren't meaningful in other you know and i in eccleston and tenant but mm -hmm. like because because we've seen all the things that both of those doctors and this one too mm -hmm. go through, like it becomes even that much more powerful, I think, yeah. than just, than just hear like hearing. Yeah. Like Eccleston, right. Saying, you know, about the turn of the earth and this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. like. Right. Or the things that he's lost, you know, whereas mm -hmm. now we've actually seen, you know, the doctor go through, you know, a number of losses. Um, yeah. 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 And it and it hints to it at you know some things we still don't necessarily have a lot of reference for like you know I know things you know that must never be told and secrets that must be kept. You know, so mm. you know, hmm, okay. Interesting. What what kind of secrets are you talking about there, doctor? Like, you know, yeah. that's something that maybe we don't have like, maybe there are a few secrets that we've learned, but that kind of seems like that's edging into the we haven't really seen that yet kind of territory. Sure. Um, so, yeah. Sure. Well, yeah. And we're 
Where do you go from that? <laughs> Where do we go from like the biggest speech the doctor has? Um, yeah. I don't know. It's a good question. Well, well, oh, well, maybe... well what one thing oh, I did want to, before we, before we sign off, one thing I did want to mention was, um, the doctors, uh, when uh, Mary first sort of gets put in the, like, tractor beam, you know, and the doctor leaves and Clara is sort of chasing after him saying, like, you can't walk out, like, it's my fault and we have to do something. And the doctor sort of turns around and, you know, says, you know, you have to understand, you know, besides, you know, the, the TARDIS and the two hearts, this is what you have to understand is we don't walk away. You know, and mm -hmm. they go and they get her. And it's such a contrast, one, to his attitude in The Snowmen recently of, like, uninvolvement. Like, I'm up on my cloud and, you know, uh, I'm not going to get, you know, involved in what's going on down on the ground. But also, right. um, even there's a line in one of his first episodes with Amy um, in The Beast Below when they see the little girl who's crying and, you know, Amy's like, what are we going to do? And the doctor kind of gives this little speech about, oh, I never interfere. You know, I'm this documentarian. I don't get involved in, you know, the affairs of peoples and planets. And then, like, in the time she's trying to ponder what that means, he's out there, you know, in the street talking to her. Interfering. Yeah. And she kind <laughs> of realizes, oh, you know, so... You only interfere when there's children crying. So I just like this idea that his policy hasn't changed, but maybe his attitude towards his policy has changed. That, like, there, he's not even pretending here that he doesn't get involved. So, like, there's no kind of speech mm. about how I, you know, I'm above it and I don't interfere. Here he openly, immediately goes and gets the moped because that's what we do. We interfere. Um, so it just is a slight shift in, again, not his action, but in kind of his attitude or how he presents it to the companion, I guess. Just wanted to mention that. Cool. Yeah. All right. All right. Well... Looks like we've finished up. So next week we are back with the Angel finale. Yes, with the Angel finale, and uh, yeah, more of a more of an actual finale than traditional the finale. finale. <laughs> it was yeah, traditional finale. Good word. So um, yeah, yeah, we'll be back there, and then uh, some more Doctor Who too, I guess. So yep. All right. Cool. See you then. Mm -hmm.